prostitutes in Colombia, which local drug lords may have staged to elicit sensitive information. You're listening to the news on RTHK. The weak global economy. Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The Dow average slips amid earnings while the Nasdaq gains on the Milan bid. Oil extends its drop before U.S. supplies data and Asian stock futures are mixed. And Baoding Tianwei becomes China's first state-owned company to default on an onshore bond, signaling the government's willingness to let market forces decide an enterprise's fate. Well, shares in uh, this part of the world are set for a mixed start today after U.S. stocks ended mixed earlier this morning and two China bond defaults in two days. We'll discuss all of this with our markets guest this morning, Kim Do of Bearings. Then we focus on oil with Vandana Hari of Platts. Enzio von Feil of Private Capital is back as guest host today. Good morning, Enzio. So, Enzio, two bond defaults and the markets don't seem to be concerned. Why? I think that the overall aggregate size of the bond defaults is just too small to make to make this a market concern. I think the bigger concern is probably going to be in defaults coming from non-Asian countries. That's certainly what we at Private Capital have been suggesting, that there, there are going to be a huge waft of currency mismatch Defaults, In other words, bonds defaulting because they've mismatched their currencies coming from probably Africans and Latin Americans. And that's where the concern lies in my mind. Okay, so China's uh, bond defaults too small to worry about at this point. But uh, the rest of it doesn't sound like great news. Uh, U.S. stocks ended mixed with the Dow ending lower after a handful of uninspiring earnings reports, while the Nasdaq closed near a record high following a proposed biotech merger. Travelers, DuPont and IBM were the biggest drag on the Dow after disappointing results and forecasts. DuPont dropped nearly 3%, while IBM fell over 1%. The Dow fell 85 points or half a percent to end at 17,949. The S&P 500 lost just over a tenth of a percent to close at 2,097. But the Nasdaq ended the day less than 35 points away from its March 2000 all-time closing high, and the rally was fueled by nearly nine by a nearly nine percent rise in Milan shares after Israeli drug maker Tiva made it an unsolicited offer of 82 dollars per share in what could be the drug industry's largest takeover this year. The Nasdaq rose 0.4 percent to 5,014. Now, Goldman Sachs uh, chief U.S. equity strategist Dave Costin says that the U.S. market trades fair value. To be fair, it trades at the higher end of a, a range of fair value. And at 2100, which is where we are today, as uh, my view, that's fair value at the end of this year. So the only modest upside, uh, in my perspective, you have the 
uh, earnings season, which has been uh, coming through. About 20% of the companies have now reported and pretty much you know, in line with expectations. It's kind of a messy quarter given the weakness in, uh, in oil prices and energy stocks. Strong uh, dollar. You've had, uh, you've had strong dollar. You've had that as a, as a general trend. Uh, but there's generally been some growth. And the issue is where is there better investment opportunities? And we look at areas outside the United States like Japan. Uh, I look into uh, into Europe from a valuation perspective, and then here in the, in the U.S., the stock market trades closer to fair value. With respect to your question, uh, some people looking maybe more hedging their portfolios. So, uh, where are the investment opportunities? Here's what uh, Allianz chief economist Mohammed El Arian says. So, what I've done is I've barbelled my exposure. If you ask the question, what's the most expensive part of the markets it's where everybody has been pushed into by central banks that's the most heavily trafficked part of the market it is the public market it is public equities and public bonds so in reaction to that people including me have been barbelling taking some of that exposure back into cash and then taking some of that exposure into higher risk less liquid less public exposures where it's harder it's harder for the central bank to push people in so think of it as barbelling in order to minimize exposures to the part of the market that is most heavily trafficked because of central banks and the chinese market continues to show signs of excess the hang seng china index uh, has already climbed 22% this year and the shanghai composite index climbed 1.8% to a 7 year high yesterday blackstone ceo steve schwartzman said at the world economic forum in jakarta that uh, part of the reason for this is that the chinese don't get enough return from interest on their bank deposits and they've been disappointed with short term investments on real estate blackstone has uh, uh, a bigger share in uh, real estate uh, investments. But uh, here's what CEO Steve Schwartzman says specifically about investing in China's real estate. Uh, not all property is equal. Uh, it's a local market and uh, we're, we're the largest investor in real estate in the world, actually, at Blackstone. Uh, and not all types of real estate uh, perform the same even within their own uh, uh, country. And you have to look at issues of supply and demand. And right now, there's a lot of demand in, in China for anything uh, touching the Internet, uh, which is growing extremely rapidly. And some of the things that touch the Internet in real estate are logistics uh, and warehouses as, as they develop their distribution systems. And, and so that's an interesting area to invest. Uh, another area... Uh, is is the growth of the middle class in China. And that's not going to stop just because growth rates uh, go down, move from the, uh, the uh, country to the cities, and uh, an increase over time uh, in consumption. Uh, and so, you know, shopping centers, uh, you know, correctly located, have tended to hold up very well uh, and, and probably will uh, in, in the future. So, so if you were looking at large office buildings or certain types of residential and certain types of markets, then that, that wouldn't give you such a, a good outcome. But I, I think you have to just be logical and careful uh, and, and analytic in, in terms of what you do. A Chinese power transformer maker became the country's first state-owned company to default on an onshore bond, signaling the government's willingness to let market forces decide an enterprise's fate.
Baoding Tianwei Group uh, is uh, the unit of a central government-owned China South Industries Group Corporation said that it will fail to pay 85.5 million yuan, that's $13.8 million of bond interest due, uh, this was yesterday. Kaisa Group Holdings became the first Chinese developer to default on its U.S. currency debt, and that was on Monday this week. The failure has signaled that the government will not do anything to come to its rescue. Now, with two bond defaults in two days, you'd think it would be negative for the markets. Uh, Steve Schwartzman says that the defaults are actually good, and PRC Marco Advisors Director William Hess agrees. It's good overall. I mean, bond, fault, bond, bond defaults should occur, but for, for these two that we're talking about right now, how many weren't announced or, or were kind of glossed over by because uh, they're kind of soaked under the rug or, or just weren't allowed to happen. So uh, so two bond defaults in a highly leveraged uh, corporate sector uh, at a downturn in the economy. Uh, in my mind, if this was something more significant where they're really allowing these companies to go under, uh, there, there are many others like these where they're either defaulting on, the, on their bank loans or maybe even on, on uh, domestic debt as well. So so I think this, for, for now, the, the bad news is good news scenario will propel sentiment. Uh, but, but longer term, I mean, one number that, that caught my attention from the, the Q1 data releases is, you know, for the first time, uh, in, in my memory anyway, this, uh, the, the rate of nominal GDP growth is lower than uh, the average level of, of interest rates in the economy, which says that, that that's really reaching an unsustainable level. So given refinancing demand, uh, given the, the need to grow, there's a lot more that, that we think the PBOC is going to need to do to support that. So, so for now, I think you know, the sentiment is justified, but that doesn't mean that there's, there's much of a, a beauty con- contest going on in credit markets. All right, let's bring in Kem Do, who is the head of multi-asset strategy at uh, for Asia at Bearings. Uh, good morning, Kem. Good morning. So, Kim, uh, you know, with regard to these bond defaults, I mean, Schwartzman and Hess say that, you know, actually these might be good for markets. Uh, Enzio here says, you know, that uh, the picture in China is too minuscule on the overall uh, world scenario of uh, potential bond defaults. What do you think? Well, I think that um, as a bond investor, uh, when one invests in um, high-yield corporate bonds, one has to expect um, a natural kind of uh, default rate um, in any country, actually, in any bond market, whether it's U.S., Europe, or China, or something like about, you know, naturally about uh, somewhere between 2 to 4% um, default of all the bonds issued. So I, I think that uh, one has to bear that in mind when one invests in high-yield corporate bonds. Now, what would you say about the government's role, you know, in all of this? I think that um, it's best for the government to actually uh, let some uh, some um, defaults to occur, just to, to ensure that um, investors uh, are aware of uh, the risk uh, when they invest. And I think that um, uh, for the long term, I think it's very healthy. Do you think it's particularly telling that uh, the government is sending forth a signal that uh, it's going to let market factors decide the state of, uh, uh, you know, these companies? Uh, I think so, yes. I think that it has always been, I think, that a deliberate policy by uh, Mr. Xi and Mr. Li that um, uh, they want the private sector to have uh, a bigger say or a bigger share of uh, the economic cake. Uh, in the long term, and therefore, I do think that market forces should have um, some uh, some um, some role to play in determining the prices uh, of either bonds or equities or, or currencies uh, in the future. 
ends you. Kim, just morning to you. Just on the um, equities market, two questions really. One, do you see the Chinese market as being a bubble? I'm, many friends are asking this, of course. And secondly, if it's not a bubble, does one buy the A or the H's? Oh, right. Uh, well, simple question, first, uh, of course. <laughs> talking about bubbles, I think that uh, we have to, if I can turn the clock back a little bit, uh, I think that the biggest bubble right in front of us right now is the government bond market in the OECD world, in, in yes. the developed world. Uh, negative interest rates in Switzerland and near negative interest rates in Germany for a 10-year bond. So that, that, that suggests that we have to lend money to the uh, government in Germany and Switzerland at, at, at negative interest rates. So we have, to, we have to give them money so that uh, we, we can buy their bonds. That, to me, is a bubble. Um, so I think that when so uh, let, let's take let's take it, let's go back to China. So as far as the Asia market is concerned, I think that it is definitely not cheap, especially for the micro caps and the small caps of China. But if if you look at the Asia market, the the large caps, I don't think that it has reached the stage where you can call it a bubble as yet. I mean, the banks are still trading at reasonable prices and and price of book and and P and so on. So uh, so I think that both the Asia and the Hessians, we believe. Uh, still have some room to move up, especially because the Central Bank of China has started to ease monetary policy. So I, I think that we are, all, in fact, all equity markets over the next 12 to 18 months will be uh, will be um, rising towards bubble valuations, definitely. Uh, th- there's no doubt about that. But I don't think we are there yet. So, Kim, if, if we're not there yet um, and there is still room for us to sort of put our money in, where would you suggest we send it? You mentioned large caps. You mentioned banks. What else? Well, I think that, uh, you know, um, investors really need to uh, just to do the fundamental research. Um, I think that uh, it's, uh, it's quite easy to do research these days. In fact, you can get from many sources and um, just look at the price earnings ratio, the price to cash flow, the yield and so on. I cannot recommend stocks on, on, uh, um, uh, on, on radio like this, but um, uh, as far as our team is concerned, we can still find plenty of stocks which make sense to us, which are not crazy and... Uh, we can still buy them at the moment. Can you point us to some industry sectors? I, I, as I said, I think that uh, you know one of the sectors is um, the banking sector, and uh, also the the telecom sector is looking a little bit more um, um, interesting. And um, you know the energy sector. Uh, obviously, oil price is hard to predict, but will oil price stay at fifty five dollars of next five years? Maybe not. Uh, so. You know, so so it depends on the time frame which investors have as well. So uh, we think that if you do your homework, you you can actually find things to buy. Enzio? Kim, what about the the metals and mining sector? I know that many people are beginning to get more interested because they think it may have bottomed. Are you, and that's the A dollar, are you a fan of those? Uh, I think metals, once again, it comes back to supply and demand. Um, and I think that... Uh, uh, between between base metals and energy, I must say that longer term, I still think that energy would be the okay. better place to be. Thank you. And Kim, um, you know, uh, the, the one sector that's talked about a lot uh, these days is certainly the Internet. And listening to Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone earlier on in the show, he uh, he's a real estate investor. But, you know, he is specifically targeting real estate that touches the Internet. Do you think that's a good strategy, um, you know, for investors all around? 
I think internet is uh, is is just an amazing phenomenon. I think that uh, you know my my kids uh, uh, who do their homework it's all it's all uh, it's all internet based these days. So you know there's five years old kids, uh, six years years old kids um, uh, access the internet. Um, everyone everyone access the internet, and I think that. Uh, it's, it's, it is it is such an amazing phenomenon, which is going to, I think, grow massively. So I, I think Mr. Schwarzman, I think that is correct in 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 tying his property investments around the the logistics of the of how the internet distribution and and so on works. I, I think that's the right strategy. Yes. All right, Kim. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Kim Do, and he is the head of multi asset strategy in Asia at Bearings. All right, time to take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up four-tenth of a percent to 19,987. Australia's uh, ASX index is up uh, one-tenth of a percent, as is Seoul's Kospi. Australia's at 5,836, and Seoul's Kospi is at 2,146. In currencies, one euro buys you 1.07 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 119 yen and one pound sterling is worth 11 Hong Kong dollars and 57 cents. To further improve public light bus safety, from June 1st, applicants for a public light bus driving license are required to complete a pre-service course before they can obtain the license. Also, a public light bus that is first registered on or after December 1st, 2014 must be fitted with an approved electronic data recording device. For details, please visit the Transport Department's website, www.td.gov.hk. Time is now 8.20 a.m. and oil fell before U.S. data predicted to show that crude stockpiles have expanded from already record levels. The West Texas Intermediate Crude lost 0.6% to $56.25 per barrel, dropping for the third time in 10 days. Let's welcome Vandana Hari of Platts Asia. She's the editor-in-chief and she's usually in Singapore, but she joins us in the studio now as she is visiting Hong Kong. So good morning, Vandana. Good morning, Ramita. Very good to be here. And thanks for joining us. Great to have have you live in the studio, you know, on Money for Nothing. So, um, Vandana, fill us in on the story as we see it right now. It's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, what I say is belt up for a roller coaster ride. I don't think the shale phenomenon, the, the tight oil flood that we're seeing from the U.S. has completely played itself out. Sure, you see... Uh, temporary uh, rallies, if you can call it that, the uptick that happened in, uh, last week. But every single time this has happened, you'll notice it gets a reality check from the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are overwhelmingly bearish. I've been saying that for several weeks now. U.S. stocks are continuing to grow. They are almost at three quarters of the uh, available, what's called the shell capacity in the U.S. And uh, U.S. production continues to grow. So the light, tight oil production is uh, at its highest in four decades now. It's sitting uh, well above 9.3 million barrels per day now. It's, um, of course, you know, from week to week, you sometimes see a, a temporary drop in it. But that's that's quite normal. That doesn't mean, you know, a swallow doesn't a summer make. And it doesn't mean U.S. production growth is coming off. It might moderate. It might grow a little less this year than it grew last year. But nonetheless, U.S. production is rising. 
So what do we do about this? I mean, uh, you know, we saw this uh, temporary relief. You say it's temporary, um, you know, a few days ago, but now um, things are looking dismal again. Are we going to expect a further drop actually in prices? That's quite likely. A uh, uh, reminder that we are in the uh, seasonal low demand period of the year, which is the second quarter. A lot of refineries, especially the Asian region, go into uh, maintenance. So crude pro- crude demand from this region is certainly going to drop. It's uh, also before the summer driving season in the U.S. kicks off. So I still think... Uh, the U.S. gasoline demand is still a little bit of a wild card out there. We have seen very healthy growth in uh, U.S. gasoline consumption so far. So, uh, you know, there remain these uh, sort of wild cards and variables in, in the markets. But uh, the other factor is that OPEC it remains quite disinclined to do anything in terms of uh, actually reining its, in its own production. So, yes, I think for now, uh, definitely it's a story of oversupply and lots of stocks. Enzio? Does that then imply, Vandana, that the oil price could well reach 20? It's currently at about 62.67. I've seen those numbers, and they, they always make for good headlines. Uh, I, I would uh, stay away from actually making a prediction, but I would say this. What we have seen so far this year, the lowest has been uh, the mid-40s uh, for, for Brent, and um, the highs of this year, the mid-60s we saw last week, and of course it's, it's come off since then. It's entirely possible that we could test low, prices could test lows below what we've seen, so below uh, mid forties, because we haven't gotten to a point yet where U.S. production will actually start. So we're not talking of growth here, but U.S. production will actually start uh, paring down, and that's what we need to see. Because arguably, there's anywhere between one and a half to two million barrels per day of oversupply in the markets right now, and there's no sign absolutely that demand is going to catch up. With that anytime soon. Just as a follow-on, you've been, as an economist, you're, you're music to my ears that you're saying supply and demand, but I'm wondering also if there isn't a political thing behind this that the OPEC, particularly Saudi Arabia and the U.S., would like to bring Russia to her knees. I mean, how do you see the political side of this oil equation panning out? See, politics is uh, an integral part of it. It always has been and, and always will be. But I wouldn't, uh, I would uh, debate with the argument that OPEC is doing this to bring Russia to its knees or to bring U.S. producers to their knees. Basically, OPEC is arguing that this current oversupply problem is a creation of the U.S. Uh, tight oil, basically the shale phenomenon and the, and the tight oil producers. And they're saying, why should we uh, sacrifice our market share and our production to let them flourish? So basically, it's uh, the end game here is for the world to move towards what is the economical um, oil at uh, the current demand scenario. And it seems that that range is closer to 60s than, than to the $100 a barrel. So speaking, you know, of, of the political issues, I mean, oil billionaire Hammond said to CNBC, I think yesterday, uh, you know, that it's, it's unfair that the U.S. would think about lifting sanctions on uh, Iran, but, you know, they themselves are not allowed to export. <laughs> what do you make of this? Uh, I'm not sure I see the connection between U.S. exports and them lifting sanctions on on Iran. Uh, See, U.S. exports is a highly politically sensitive issue. And uh, from all the it's it's, sometimes it's it's difficult to pick the signals from all the noise. But there's lobbies both ways uh, arguing for and against uh, the lifting of those um, the export restrictions. 
um, it doesn't seem it's going to happen anytime soon. So uh, the part on Iran is that, of course, uh, you know, we saw um, quite a, a bearishness set into the markets very, very temporarily when the framework agreement was signed between the P5 plus one and Iran. But that evaporated very quickly and um, prices found their, their normal levels very quickly. And that was because the market digested the facts that it's a long journey from the framework agreement being signed to Iran actually being able to release back into the market, let's say, one million barrels per day of supplies uh, that have been curbed. There's many, many steps. Of course, we have to first see a comprehensive deal being signed and then uh, a host of other boxes that Iran needs to tick, including reducing its uranium stockpiles, its uranium enrichment, and, and allowing inspectors, the IAEA inspectors, in uh, as well. So it could be, you know, well over a year before we actually see any uh, of the additional Iranian supplies back in the market. Now, Vandana, you said uh, a little bit earlier that, you know, uh, forget growth. I mean, U.S. production, you know, needs to begin to pare down. Yesterday, industry leaders at the World Economic Forum on East Asia in Jakarta said that they expect oil prices to rise further. Melody Boone, mayor from Chevron, uh, actually told the forum that her company had a number of projects that were viable and that the long-term view was that the demand for oil is growing. Sure. So there's a short term and a long... In the short term, I think trying to predict oil prices uh, is trying to catch a falling knife, uh, really. Uh, so in the, in the short term, I, what I say is there's definitely going to be volatility. Uh, there's definitely going to be more downside unle- until and unless we test the levels, the bare minimum, you know, where U.S. production actually starts uh, falling. The longer term picture, to my mind, is, um, is far more uh, critical in, in, in a lot of ways and one that we, unfortunately, the market doesn't pay enough attention to. Uh, which is that all of these billions of dollars that are being taken off the table by the producers uh, in terms of re- reduced capex uh, expenditure in uh, oil as well as gas. So this is going to play itself out in the next five to ten years. And it might not be as problematic if the world demand supply situation continues as it is now. But I would uh, agree with uh, the view that demand has to come back up. In the longer term, demand only has to go up. So when that happens, you know, God forbid, should there be another demand shock and uh, production remains uh, low because of the reduction in all of this capital expenditure, and this is like down the line, uh, we could see prices uh, going back up again. All right, Vandana, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It was real pleasure. That is Vandana Hari, and she is the editor-in-chief of Platts Asia. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. Uh, the Nikkei is up seven-tenths of a percent to 20,053. Australia's ASX index down three-tenths of a percent to 5,826. And Seoul's Kospi up three-tenths of a percent to 2,151. Gold is currently valued at $1,202 per ounce. And Brent crude oil is at $61.91. And Enzio, uh, you heard her. She said no more prediction oil prices in the short term because like that's like catching a falling knife we don't want to do that right absolutely but you have to but she does have but Valentina does have a view which i think is always useful we can we can have views absolutely all right so what is your view enzio on uh, where we should be uh, looking uh, this week uh, we're right in the middle of the week so what's your view on the markets china hong kong india buy short oil Simple as that. In other words, I think that the economic clock for China 
for China, thus Hong Kong, the water skier off the back of the Chinese speedboat, and India, the economic clock is ticking very nicely on an excess supply of money. In other words, too much money chasing too few assets. And that's because there's an excess supply of goods. The economies are going quite slowly. Shorting of oil, I think, just for what Vandana was saying in my humble short-term prediction, which I'm sure will be wrong, is that it just seems as if there's probably with these growth figures coming out of the U.S. and the housing starts and all that, that the um, growth prospects, if anything, are going to be a little bit bleaker in the near term as opposed to more positive. All right. Very good. Thank you so much for joining us Thank this morning, you. Enzio. That is Enzio von Feil, and he is an investment strategist at Private Capital. And I'm Renita Malhotra Hora, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. The weather forecast for today will be mainly cloudy with sunny periods during the day. The temperature right now is 22 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 87%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. The government is to unveil its political reform blueprint today, but no surprises are expected as it's played down the possibility of concessions to try to secure votes from pan-Democrat lawmakers. They've repeatedly vowed to veto any proposal based on a framework set out by Beijing. Priscilla Ng has a preview of what's expected. Under Beijing's formula, a 1,200-member nominating committee will pick two or three candidates